0: QuantSpeak. Expert insights from Quants for Quants. Welcome to QuantSpeak, a new podcast from the CQF Institute at Fitch Learning. Hi, I'm Dan Tudball, editor of Wilmot magazine, and this is QuantSpeak. I have found myself tilting at windmills on more occasions than I care to enumerate, so it's rather nice to be able to introduce this edition with a quote from Cervantes. It is the part of the wise man to keep himself today for tomorrow, says Sancho Panza, and not to venture all his eggs in one basket. Which actually isn't a quote from Cervantes at all, but a whimsical, by which I mean wholly inaccurate, translation from the 1700s by one Peter Motteur. A London trader in wares from India and South China alongside his career as a literary cavalier. So much for eggs then. But as evidenced by Monsieur Matteau of Saint Mary Acts' motley means to monetary ends, the unreliable translator did at least believe in diversification, which rather neatly is today's topic. As Cervantes also once maybe wrote, in order to attain the impossible, one must attempt the absurd. Today, I'm joined by Jean-Paul Jaegers, head of asset allocation at Barclays Wealth and Investments. Jean-Paul's career in tactical asset allocation and multi-asset solutions has taken him from risk-taking as portfolio manager in an absolute return macro fund to a role as senior multi-asset strategist for one of the largest insurance companies. And now to to leading a team of experts in private wealth of Barclays UK, covering both strategic asset allocation as well as tactical asset allocation in the wealth business. Jean-Paul will be giving a talk for the CQF Institute on 9th of November entitled, Tell Me, What Exactly is Diversification and How Do We Evaluate It? Welcome, Jean-Paul. Hello, Dan. Thanks very much for joining us today. Now, I wouldn't normally refer to current conditions on this podcast, but the markets had quite a ride after the now retracted mini-budget in the UK. Now, global markets are seeing a regime shift, getting back to reality, you might say. It'd be good to get your take from an asset allocation perspective. Hello, thank you for the nice
1: introduction and, 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 and the welcome words. And, and as you say, it has been quite a, a time for financial markets. Um, I think there are a few observations we can make, so it's it's again a good practical example of uh, how politics is very difficult to use in investment decisions and market timing, especially when we have an, an asset allocation mindset. And one of those reminders that, that exogenous shocks and events will come and go, uh, and in that respect we've seen the volatility in the guild markets has been phenomenal uh in in the extent uh, but also in, in 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 the pace that surprised many investors and i think this actually ties in nicely with beginning of your introduction that diversification that diversification in investment portfolios is to reduce or isolate those kind of impacts in, in 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 a wider investment portfolio
0: absolutely yes it's been it's been pretty hairy recently but um diversification is a word that crops up in a lot of brochures and investment philosophies, but it's often used interchangeably with efficient or optimal in a very naive, pure risk return lens, isn't it? Yes, that's
1: a a very good observation. So I have the impression very often when we read about investment philosophies or if investment teams explain how they build investment portfolios, that very often they use the terminology diversification and maximum diversification, and very often, if you think about it, I think what they implicitly try to tell is that they use a portfolio optimization technique. And it's important to differentiate between the two because diversification is of course much more than just having an optimal or an efficient uh, portfolio. I'm going off a little bit on, on a tangent here, but it's, it's, it's interesting in the early 2000s, uh, some researchers at Yale, they came up with an experiment and asked people to explain something of everyday life. And they said, can you please explain me a house or a zipper or a rainbow? And beforehand, he asked them to rate their knowledge. Then he had their, their students explain the concept uh, and didn't stop them and during the process, ask them to rate their knowledge again. What often happened is that when explaining something, they start to realize they knew much less about it than when they started off at first hand. And that's a little bit what they they coined the, the illusion of explanatory depth. And I think one of the words that really reminds me as a good concept for this is diversification. We hear it a lot, we read it a lot, but once we really test ourselves to can you really explain it, in length or detail, how far can you go? And I think that's, that's sometimes a good test because very often people start off with portfolio uh, optimizations or efficient frontiers, but then very quickly it stops.
0: Exactly. And that's a problem that I find, I, if I stop to think about it, I have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. So <laughs> you mentioned portfolio optimization, efficient frontier, uh, depending on what measures you use for diversification, the efficient frontier and the diversified portfolio could be located in entirely different areas. Yeah,
1: yes, yes. So often at university, or people get educated on finance, then with the, you, you get the concept of uh, the efficient frontier or portfolio optimization. And very often, if you illustrate an an efficient frontier. People immediately look to what's the global minimum variance portfolio, or where's the tangent on the efficient frontier, uh, and, and think that that's the best place to find a diversified or an asset allocation for a portfolio. But if you think about it, back decades ago, we came up with portfolio management techniques to reduce a very complex problem. So often, it has been reduced to one or two dimensions where obviously some crude assumptions had to be made. Uh, and everyone was aware of the time that if you just look at volatility or return, that you can come up with a better way of come up with an asset allocation instead of one over N. But of course, those come with quite uh, crude, um, crude assumptions. On the efficient frontier, or even below the efficient frontier, there will also be very concentrated portfolios especially if you go up the risk spectrum or down the risk spectrum. And the question is, if you have very concentrated portfolios, is that still a very diversified portfolio? Or if you are more holistic and think about more than just risk adjusted return, uh, investors would have preferences for upside versus downside. So then you start moving away from the single point estimate you find on or below the efficient frontier. And I would probably argue that if you, think about diversification as a more holistic concept that your diversified portfolio could be anywhere below the efficient frontier Uh, we we don't know so it depends on the dimensions you start introducing that you start moving around below the efficient frontier where the asset allocations could actually look quite different but once you introduce drawdown permanent loss of capital those kind of considerations you might actually move away from the one or two dimensional world
0: absolutely before we discuss dimensions a little bit more when you were at university and experiencing finance for the first time how how were you struck by portfolio theory relative to your understanding of diversification and we'll get on to how that perspective may or may not have changed over the years later on but uh, and we'll follow up with dimensions. But I'm just interested in, to note, you know, where you were at university level and whether you think uh, there's any learnings that we might draw from that in terms of the assumptions that people make. Oh, that's a very interesting question. So, when I did my university
1: degree, which I thoroughly enjoyed, uh, and that's where I discovered my passion for investing, um, very often I think the nuances with a lot of theories come with. experience you get over time so very often when you get thought about modern portfolio theory or how to optimize portfolio or how to think about risk management um in at least during my education i always felt well those are some very helpful solutions to a problem um but with more experience under my belt i i I felt well there are a lot of nuances and crude assumptions which probably i didn't realize to the full extent at that time right
0: yeah so Going back to dimensions again, um, you know, you're talking about more than one or two dimensions, let's say, you know, more than just variance uh, or risk adjusted returns matter for investors or portfolio management. Um, Can you add a little bit more to that observation?
1: Yeah, of of course. So, so, so it's. And that that, that 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 I think in the industry developed quite quite some decades ago. So if you think about portfolio management, very often then it came up about optimizing a sharp, or optimizing a utility. And by doing that, you're able to reduce a complex problem into something that has one or two dimensions, and you come up with an optimal portfolio if you only look at that measure. But of course, we know that volatility as a risk concept is actually quite one could say naive or limited. Uh, if you think about loss of capital or if you get upside volatility. So in some sense, you could say, well, it, probably investors differentiate between upside risk and downside risk differently. They will perceive and feel it differently. And that goes back to the Kahneman and Tversky observation of prospect theory that losses actually feel much more painful than marginal gains. Uh, the, the same uh, you, you could think about. It's uh, another way of getting more convexity or skew in portfolio. So if you have something that does well, if markets go up a lot or if markets go down a lot, but might not lose too much in the middle. So you could think, for example, at trend following models or ideas. Uh, So those are ways, I think, to enhance or to improve the profile of a portfolio and move away from necessarily getting volatility, because if you would purely think about a a uh, more plain vanilla Markowitz uh, efficient frontier, you could possibly argue if something is imperfectly correlated with your portfolio. And with imperfectly correlated, I mean, having a correlation of um, one, exactly one or minus one, that as soon as you have something that's imperfectly correlated, you can improve the, the diversification of your portfolio. Uh, but sometimes implicitly you make a trade-off in other characteristics or elements of your portfolio. So it could be that if you include an asset or security that's imperfectly correlated, that actually your downside risk increases. So you might get your optimal sharp up a little bit, but you introduce another dimension which is not captured by your sharp, which might create a, a, a more negative impact on your portfolio. And that makes it quite hard because if if you think well, I want to optimize the best risk-adjusted return with the minimum drawdown risk with the best skew convexity profile with the best. And you can layer on as many dimensions as you like. The problem comes becomes actually very complex and it's almost impossible to optimize in so many dimensions. And that's why often it has been reduced to one or two dimensions. And you could either prefer utility or a sharp or whatever you pick in that sense. Uh, but the importance i think one of the reminders we have in in in, in, as practitioners is to think well that's one way of optimizing your portfolio but potentially you could you could bolt on different nuances and different perspectives and even if you find an optimal sharp well how do we assess the drawdowns and compare the drawdowns of the different portfolios how do we compare look for different upside compared to downside
0: the As you're saying, you know, the question is, how much would you give up from this optimal tilt towards something else? And, you know, I'm thinking you mentioned that it was actually trading that really got you interested in finance in the first place. Do you have to have a trader's mindset to think about diversification in an effective way rather than just a technical mindset? I actually I, I, I would probably say it's it's, it's it's more curiosity,
1: curiosity in understanding of the technicalities and the curiosity to question yeah your own understanding and how things things behave. I think the, the curiosity is probably the most important element that I think got me started in in, 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 in finance and got me so absorbed in investments finding out new ways and where often in building portfolios or trading derivatives or pricing, it can get quite technical. So that's the technical uh, curiosity. But equally on the other hand, if you are in asset allocation, it's very macro-oriented. A lot of things in macro world are not Gaussian, especially not as precisely modeled as we often see on the derivative side. So especially on the macro side, a lot of the models are very crude and raw and the the data doesn't allow for very precise modeling. And also there you have the curiosity of of why does this economic model work or why does this happen if central banks raise or lower policy rates? And I think it's more the curiosity that will keep you sharp as an investor uh, and keep you sharp on why are things happening as, as they are happening? How might things be different in, future compared to the past and i think what we see now is also a very good good reminder of that Uh, we we started uh, at the beginning in a conversation touching on diversification and but actually this year is a very good reminder possibly for a lot of multi-asset investors that they spend a lot of time on optimizing or thinking of introducing diversification in their portfolios but at times like these where equities have a severe drawdown fixed income has a disproportionate drawdown credit is down year to date although you thought you had a lot of diversification in a world of elevated and uh, increasing inflation it didn't turn out to work and then getting back to your initial question of how much would you give up when you tilt your portfolio if you start and introducing more dimensions well that's often the hard bit and we see that a lot with with a lot of models. If you have to come up with a risk aversion parameter or if you need to come up with, with exactly how to get to the nitty gritty of the parameters, that, that's quite difficult. So I, th- I one could think of if you come up with a portfolio asset allocation based on a certain optimization technique that you sh- could start introducing or look within the efficient frontier to look for slightly different allocations that address those other dimensions that were not captured in the initial optimization technique, but how much of a sharp would you give up or how much of utility would you give up to move around in in, in the frontier is more, I would probably say it's more of an art than a science. And that would probably also depend on the allocations themselves. So for example, if you would have a very concentrated portfolio, you think that well, that doesn't really fit with being very diversified, well, to what extent are you going to rebalance or reshift your portfolio to get something that looks more diversified or has more properties? Uh, if you look to downside, upside, uh, and th- that's more of an art than a science. And I think that will depend a little bit on the type of portfolios. That will depend a little bit on the lenses being used. Because most of the times we talk about portfolio weights, but you could also look at factor exposures. So a lot of different ways how you can slice and dice your portfolio. But I think it's 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 just the observation that if you have come up with a portfolio allocation, you could still consider or think of additional steps to address different dimensions. Very often, I have the impression that if investors come up with a portfolio allocation, that they will say, well, this is the optimal I get to, and then use terminology as diversified to, 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 um, to refer to that product. And and I actually think well diversified is much richer and could include uh, could include more dimensions but it's not as precise. And 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 it, the your purist would say and that's a little bit with the modeler uh, hat on the purist would probably say then it's not optimal anymore. So you're not o- optimizing to something specifically. So if you do portfolio optimization towards something you get an optimal in the sense that you can define it and write it down. If you start mixing or tilting towards slightly different techniques or different dimensions or considerations, essentially your your portfolio is not optimal to one dimension anymore. Uh, that would probably be the, the, the pushback from the purist.
0: Absolutely. I guess the lesson is just not to fall into the trap of uh, being blinded by a narrow definition. So Jean-Paul, although there are complex techniques to address some of the known weaknesses like covariance, matrix, shrinkage. But why is it that too little reflection is likely given to the trade-offs and how to balance multi-dimensions? Why why is, is that? That's an excellent question. And to be very honest, I don't have a very
1: precise answer to that. So we have seen a lot of advances in different techniques, so in risk management, in portfolio optimizations. But if we think more holistically about diversification, I don't think there exists a broadly accepted, unique, satisfactory methodology to quantify and to manage diversification. And I think part of the problem is what we touched upon a little bit earlier is if you have multiple dimensions. So very often, if you le- if you read some of the academic literature, they come up with uh, comparing the sum of standard deviations with the standard deviation of your portfolio or they will look at some concentration index or they will have other measures that aim to measure diversification but obviously that's then getting back again to either a volatility or a weight concentration measure as it is just very difficult and very challenging to get the different dimensions uh, yeah layered up in a way that you can really measure it and quantify it and that makes my, my life sometimes a little bit uh, bit, bit harder because if, if senior management at Barclays says, well, John Paul, you're always telling us about diversification and that we should not just look at a risk adjusted return or an information ratio, that it includes much more than that. And it's very difficult in some sense to really quantify that. So to quantify what's a good asset allocation and has this asset allocation been excellent or just okay. How close has it been to the model or your expectation? And in that sense, it's, it's, it's quite a difficult measure to, to grade or to measure in a quantitative way. How good has your diversification been?
0: Generally in your conversations, where in the crux is that point? What's the, what's the, what's the shared definition of diversification? And Making the assumption that all we'll agree it's not just risk adjusted return. How often do you find yourself having sort of different iterations of the same conversation to get everybody on board? So that depends a little bit on
1: the counterparts, how well or how deep he or she is involved in investments or had investment backgrounds, and and, and as there is no broadly agreed or accepted satisfactory way to really quantify or manage it, it remains a live debate And, and that is a little bit the challenge but also a little bit the beauty. We keep educating ourselves on how to look at portfolios in slightly different ways and how to get slightly different perspectives A good example is sometimes when I get questions either from clients or from various parts of the business to say, well, if you have a multi-asset portfolio, you have a range of different assets in in your portfolio, there will be an asset that will have a poor return over the last year, over the last three years. And then it's very tempting as humans to look at where, where are the losses in your portfolio and then start questioning why do we still have it in there? Should we not change something? Why has this been... introduced in portfolio and then very often it gets a little bit philosophical or or academic but then i'll always explain well there are many counterfactuals and in some sense you care and should care about the profile of your portfolio because in any portfolio there will be winners and losers Uh, and if you rank a portfolio versus assets by by definition a diversified portfolio will not be at the top or at the bottom uh, and, and and that's something I think yeah it's, it''s often that emotions come into play or that our 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 minds get hijacked a little bit to look for certain losses, a way to improve a portfolio, which often yeah can be a bit naive and where yeah where I think the important bit is in the messaging is look at the total portfolio, assess the properties of the total portfolio and see whether that fits, and just keep in mind that that's one realization of the past of many counterfactuals.
0: That neatly leads on, you know, considering what considerations one could make when building portfolio allocations. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Um, what are your thoughts in terms of industry standards and and other ways in which we might be able to kind of get beyond a narrow view? So I'll I'll, I'll touch
1: on that in a little bit more detail in the talk uh, on 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 November the ninth, but in if, if in industry standards so it, it a, a little bit during this this podcast we spoke about some of the limitations in diversification It's hard to be being defined and very hard to measure and to grade in quality but then the question after comes up well it's nice to, to label the problems but can you also come up with with some solutions one of the things one one for example can can carefully look at is instead of starting off with an asset universe so if as a investor you get given an asset universe and say well let's come up with an asset allocation or how would you structure this portfolio is to carefully think of how you would group or partition different assets. So I think sometimes that's a little bit an overlooked step uh in in, 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 in a lot of asset allocation uh, questions that once you get a set a, a universe of assets that you could group the different assets or partition the the the, 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 the securities in that sense you address a little bit of the potential correlation risks you might have. So if you group certain assets that have a high intra-correlation and just say, well, this is one asset, and then you have another group of assets and you say, well, this is another asset. Think about clustering techniques, a lot of quantitative techniques that will help you in splitting up uh, the, the data and making that your starting point actually is is, is is potentially a little bit more robust than starting off with just all assets in one group and letting a portfolio optimization pick and choose uh, the weights to those assets. Uh, and another common industry technique we often see is bootstrapping. So we see that just a way of resampling the past. And actually by by resampling the past many, many times, you, you allow yourself to create a lot of different potential futures so we can use historical returns and use that uh, to create uh, uh, potential futures. But a little bit what will happen is if you sample a lot of your past returns, that's the central limit theorem coming to the rescue, you get something that looks very Gaussian. And as soon as you have something that looks very Gaussian because you did a lot of resampling from the past, uh, that will depart from what we see uh, empirically, and especially in macro where a lot of assets and a lot of um, uh, investment vehicles don't behave, behave in, in, in a Gaussian, Gaussian world. Uh, So what you could think of, for example, is think about a block sampling or probability sampling. So you sample something from the past, but introduce a little bit serial correlation by saying, well, what's the probability you actually get the realized next month or the next realized month? And by that, you get something that's in between the empirical distribution and the Gaussian distribution. So you introduce something that has slightly fatter tails and is a little bit closer to to reality. And once you come up with, whether you do that with a sharp or with a utility uh, portfolio, what you then can do is, as we touched on a few minutes ago, is say, well, how much do I give up to tilt it to somewhere else? Um, so you could think of once you've done one optimization to allow a certain budget of the where you optimize to do up op- to do a second optimization or to do an interpolation or do a tilting to slightly different a portfolio that either addresses concentration, that either addresses downside risk, uh, that would improve this queue, uh, those kind of examples. And, and, and I think those mixes and matches is probably where a little bit uniqueness comes in, where I think often the asset allocation process stops when we get to an efficient or an optimal portfolio.
0: Certainly, I can see where, say, something like machine learning and synthetic data would come in very useful in that sort of scenario yes absolutely absolutely you know uh, the sort of delineation that you mark there between micro and macro is also very interesting i mean it's almost as if macro is the wild frontier and you're 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 out there <laughs>
1: it is true that within macro often the models are a more crude simplification of reality and often data-wise in for macro data, it's much more challenging. Um, and that's, that's part the beauty, but also part the challenge. If we think about pricing derivatives and a lot of these uh, the, the subjects come up during the, the CQF, then in the continuous world, we can recalibrate uh, models. We can, can them to converge to, towards something. And actually, if you do it in a continuous world, you get something that does a pretty good job. As soon as you step to the macro world, and a lot of economic models, then suddenly the data is not coming to the rescue. And a lot of it becomes, because you use discrete at, at time frames, and then suddenly it becomes much harder to model something or to get a model to converge or to get something that's very accurate. So in the macro world, the models tend to be a more crude simplification of
0: the reality. Absolutely, and as a result, a lot of opportunity there, I would imagine.
1: Yes, yes. So I I, I think, and that comes back to the point earlier about curiosity, that it's it's more about questioning the limitations of what you're really modeling and how that impacts the output and that that you should stay focused on, well, especially for some of those models, it's a very crude uh, simplification. uh, How in practice or how does the practitioner adapt to that uh, how can we make sure we are aware of the risks in portfolio or the downsides of different optimization techniques and the limitations so that requires yeah a bit more active i think reflection and curiosity and probably over time experience will help with that
0: fantastic segue to the next section of the discussion because we're going to spend a few minutes now talking about your career and uh, curiosity of course leads to the first question what was it that led you to a career in finance in the first place oh
1: that's an excellent question and i have to have to go back far 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 in time so it's i think it was during my teenager time through my teenager time i i i really didn't understand if the if, if i saw on the news or read in a newspaper that stocks were going up one day and down the next day and that 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 really i i couldn't get my head around that concept that led to me starting reading books. So I started reading books on uh, on uh, stock pricing and on option pricing. And I still remember then I was a student, so I had some savings from a student job. I was not able to sign any documentation, so I had to go to my parents to sign the documentation for me, but I opened an account to to to, to trade some stocks and some options but that was purely for an educational purpose. And that was purely to learn from the experience and with the books in hand, try to, try to, make, yeah, to make something of it. Um, of course, that was not very successful, but I think it triggered a, 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 yeah, a curiosity and a, and, a, and a sense of small passion for trying to understand investments. Well, after that, I went to a business school uh, to study economics. Uh, and during this time, I spent some time in Singapore for an internship. Uh, and after that, I did a master's in finance at Maastricht University. Um, yeah, which which I thoroughly enjoyed and really discovered the passion for investing, where after I uh, yeah, joined, joined the asset management industry in macro asset allocation and have been since.
0: And your first gig as a portfolio manager began during a booming market and it took you through the first years of the last global financial crisis so that must have been extremely educational yes indeed
1: that's one way to put it it was very very educational um God, and if, if, if i can still vividly remember the, the the various announcements and the sheer panic in 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 markets but also on the uh, on 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 the floor, and and that that has yeah that makes a very big big impression. At the time, we were a multi asset solutions team uh, managing around thirty billion in TA overlays for institutional clients. Um, we had about five billion in absolute return funds as a team, and suddenly you realize you have to deal with very different problems than what you're used to. Uh, I remember having discussions in the team on. Cash balances that uh, that various of our clients held uh, with banks and custodians. Uh, given banks were failing one one, one every one every time. Uh, questions on illiquidity, so we were not able to trade certain uh, securities or derivatives, uh, which was something that I hadn't experienced before. Um, there were discussions about unrealized PLs on OTC derivatives. For example, if you have swaps with Lehman Brothers and Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, what will happen to that unrealized PL, to that claim? How much can be recouped? And even you saw suddenly afterwards a market opening up for trading those claims. Uh, credit impact if banks get downgraded, how does it impact if you innovate and 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 an uh, o t c derivative and how does it impact so suddenly we we had to put up with all kind of new problems and challenges uh, which was yes yeah, as, as, as you put it very educational and, and in that sense an a very special period as a team we had the the benefit that we could fall back on a very robust investment process um because during those times it's often. trick a little bit to fight your emotions Uh, very often it becomes we humans tend to become indecisive or become a little bit uncomfortable if you have losses in portfolio or how to manage a drawdown and where you have to stay focused and keep your rational hat on and i say rational with in between brackets because it's not that the opposite is irrational Um, but in that sense yeah we were as a team we were very involved in the shaping of the investment process and the risk management. And I think as a team, and me as an individual, have learned a great deal from that. And it's, yeah. Now you mentioned, it's actually quite extraordinary that with the hindsight, you don't really feel the panic of it. Now, now if you think back of nationalization or failures of banks, it feels less extreme than how it really felt at the moment. In the moment, it felt like there were real concerns of the financial system collapsing.
0: Absolutely. Again, it it really marked a, a regime shift at that point. In a funny sort of way, we're returning to uh, what it was pre-global financial crisis, just in terms of the uh, macroeconomic situation. I mean, obviously, we had uh, zero rates just prior to the collapse of Lehman and the, uh, the subprime crisis and so on. But certainly, in terms of that sort of high watermark prior to 2007 2008 and then what we have subsequently have become very very used to in terms of the uh, the regulatory impact on the markets uh, that everything can be solved via uh, quantitative easing and now finally we see uh, what is it quantitative tightening it's, yeah,
1: it's 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 a very good observation and and i think we still see some of the the shadows of the great financial crisis. And you touched on regulation and, and, and other elements. and But also, on some parts, you see that you see a little bit the mirror image or what's the right word? You see a repeat, but then in, in opposite direction. So very soon after the great financial crisis, uh, all central banks said, well, we, now we get into a period of disinflation, but it will be temporary. It, our models tell us that inflation will pick up and we're going to do what we can to raise uh, inflation. Well, it turned out to be a decade of of disinflation, And during in the process, they gave up on the models to say, well, let's now get more to uh, become data dependent. And they came up with all kinds of conditions on what the data need to look like for them to do something slightly different. If you think now about the recent past is a little bit what we see in opposite directions. So inflation has surged getting out of the pandemic. And central banks told us, well, this will be transitory. Well, that term has been designated to the bin. But and now they're turning more to, well, let's be data dependent. Let's see how the data looks like. Let's see how the labor market adapts to it. And I think in that sense, we see some similarities by yeah, you know, getting more short term and doing what we can to, to impact inflation, but in the opposite direction.
0: Absolutely. So from an asset management perspective, how would you characterize that last decade? Because you're you went through that nightmare scenario, and then, as you say, this 10-year uh, wait for inflation. And <laughs> and and now, in the great words of Yoda, are you having to unlearn what you have learned?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think, I think that's part of what makes macro so interesting and so intriguing. So we're always changing in Environment or regime, and 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 you can think about it in in very different timescales. But I think what we have been going through, in this since the '90s or since the '80s up to now, is if if you think in big picture terms, uh, extremely interesting and also extremely different. I think the current environment you can't really compare it to the '90s or the '2000s for various different geopolitical and macroeconomic reasons. Um, but also, if you think back about the asset management industry, it, it, it has changed massively compared to casting your mind back 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, just just a few strands of trends that we have been seeing is, is focus on risk management. I think risk management has become more to the fore and has improved even further uh, as, as an important element in asset management. We've seen a massive squeeze on fees. So we've seen a lot of asset managers uh, and wealth managers uh, trying to create scale with the help of technology and thereby reducing uh, the fees that can be charged partially because what you mentioned was the low, lower return environment and low interest rate environment, uh, that, that high fees would be very hard to, uh, to absorb for customers. We've seen the importance of ESG and impact investing come to the fore. This is clearly a trend we have been seeing in recent years that and that will that will continue very different than 10 or 15 years ago Uh, also i think in terms of transparency if you think about communication that previously if you were a fund manager you were managing an nav or you were part of a house view within an asset manager now investment teams come up with blogs they have linkedin articles they have videos So the people who really manage your investments, I think there is a different way of communicating and providing transparency to to your end clients. Um, And you touched on regulation. If you think about MIFID, sort of relation between investment banks and asset managers, uh, the evolution of the different securities. So earlier on, I mentioned, for example, when Lehman went bust that for OTC derivatives you had, some unrealized P&Ls and some claims in portfolios, not sure what to do with it. Well, nowadays those, for example, swaps get cleared. We clearly see, yeah, year from year development, in and and yeah, it's quite impressive if you would cast your mind back ten years ago how different the asset management industry
0: looks like. I think. Absolutely. Well, my last question for you is, you know, if if a person with a with a very quantitative uh, approach to things, is looking to progress career-wise in terms of asset management, what would your advice be to them? I'm a strong believer in, in, in continuous learning
1: and using the strength of general curiosity. And it could be either quantitatively, so uh, of course people have a quantitative mindset, it's easier to progress and get more comfortable with different concepts or different depths of knowledge in quantitative side. But I think it's equally important to, to look for breath and see how you can learn about things that might not be directly in your comfort zone. And actually, if you have a broad profile where you're very comfortable with the numbers, where you understand how derivative works or portfolio management techniques, but equally understand the limitations or the macro world or how the past may look different than the future, I think that will be a strength to any investor or any individual in asset management, because very often people feel more comfortable in one uh, one small area, but I think it's often the trick to uh, become a little bit more broader and, and and just yeah, use your curiosity to ask a lot of questions that, that you can learn at any age in every area.
0: Thank you. So anything that you'd like to add before we, we wrap up?
1: So what, one of other things I would probably would like to to, to touch on is that uh, you spoke about experience or what would help you progress in finance or asset management. One of the other elements I've in my experience noticed that isn't an, isn't an important quality is communication, and sometimes that get overlooked, especially with people with a like myself with a with a heavy quant mindset. But the ability to communicate with different stakeholders and different audiences in different language is actually a very important skill set. Um, I think in in asset management. Uh, Very often you get stakeholders in front of you who might not be technically uh, have the same background, so you need to explain concepts very easily. Very often you will notice that that's much harder than you initially uh, think it is, Uh, but equally to communicate in environments where you need to keep control of direction of the interview for example if you have media interviews or you get questions which you would like to redirect or questions that you would answer in a slightly different ways and those are skill sets that are often not taught at university but will come in handy when you get a career in asset management and and that's part of the breadth skill set where someone understands really the numbers can communicate well uh, and equally understands the investments
0: thanks very much john paul So we're going to wrap up here. I just want to remind the listeners, uh, CQF Institute ties in with what uh, John Paul was saying about lifelong learning, by the way. Um, CQF Institute, John Paul will be doing a talk on 9th of November. And that is, tell me, what exactly is diversification and how do we evaluate it? To attend is free. You have absolutely no excuse. So, we expect thousands and thousands of people to be watching John Paul. Thanks so much for your time today, John Paul. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Quant Speak. Don't forget to subscribe and do sign up to the CQF Institute for more insights into quant finance.